Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. I am broadcasting to you from Bangkok, of all places. So we are going to do a sound check. And we'll see how that goes. And if that goes well, then we can proceed with our show. You're probably wondering, what am I doing in Thailand? I'm actually attending an internet conference on how to communicate better. Oh, my gosh. Okay, great. Sound check went well. You can hear me all the way from Thailand. This is absolutely awesome. Uh, The only other uh, malfunction we seem to have is that uh, our recording mechanism is not going well here. And tell me I can't record. So we're going to have to go with what we have, and hopefully uh, our Blake recording is going to work. That's what we're going to do. All right. <laughs> Today's topic is deadly metrics. You got it, deadly metrics. Now, those of you who are interested or uh, pay attention to things like management, whenever you're managing something, you're trying to achieve a goal, you have to establish metrics. Metrics are something that you use to measure how well you're doing. For example, if you're in business, maybe one metric might be sales. Uh, If you're trying to grow a family, maybe one metric might be how many children you have. Um, Maybe if you're trying to uh, control your family budget, one metric might be how much you're spending on your electric bill. So there's things in life that individuals and businesses measure to see how well they're doing. And we call these things metrics. And if anyone uh, 
goes any deeper than that, you also have uh, KPI. Those are key performance indicators. And so in order to achieve your goal, you need metrics. You need to measure something. You need to have these intermediary targets or targets along the way just to know you're on track. And so today we're going to talk about metrics. What things do doctors measure that lead to the 880,000 uh, deaths per year by medical uh, intervention? So first of all, I'd like to say that 880,000 deaths per year is a lot of deaths. This is not something that can possibly, possibly happen by accident. So in order to kill 880,000 people a year, the medical industrial complex needs some metrics, some way to uh, measure, some targets to shoot at. And so what has happened then is doctors have been given targets to achieve. And these targets that doctors have been given are inherently deadly. And that's the key to achieving 880,000 killings per year is the targets that competent, capable, caring doctors are aiming for in terms of their treatment goals are themselves inherently uh, deadly. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about uh, a few of these deadly targets. So uh, this is something that uh, I think it's important to take a look at because no matter what business you're in, you can't achieve 880,000 anything happening every year uh, by accident. And if you go down to your local bakery or your uh, local plumber or uh, any shop, ask them, uh, do they have 880,000 uh, sales per year? And if we take a look at this, uh, 880,000. And we take a look at this and we, and we realize that a large number of these, if not all, actually had to pass through the hospital. And we take a look at the average uh, cost per hospital day for somebody who, a uh, hospital stay, S T A Y stay, four day average four-day hospital stay, for somebody who dies, is somewhere in the neighborhood of $40,000. So if we say, let's uh, frugally uh, guess that only half of these people, 880,000, end up in the hospital, and that's actually uh, a conservative measure. The number's higher than that, but we'll take that number. And we say that the industry collected, on average, uh, $40,000 for each uh, killing, then what we've got here is is $17 billion, $17.6 billion. That's a lot of profit. That's, that could keep a lot of businesses going. I mean, that's not shabby. This is, this is pretty hefty revenue, $17.6 billion, at least, at least. And this is in a, uh, a $3 trillion uh, industry. So well, what we're looking at here is a, is a, is a substantial sum of, uh, sum of money. Now, let's figure out what helps reach this 
number. Okay. And these are just uh, treatment goals, treatment objectives. And uh, so let's take a let's take a look. First of all, we have one goal. One goal that I'm uh, really shocked by is the cholesterol goals. So what's the big deal about a cholesterol goal? There's a couple of things wrong with the cholesterol goal. First of all, the latest guidelines are that cholesterol, total cholesterol, we'll even get into the details, but total cholesterol should be less than 200. That number gets lower every, uh, every year. Now, what the public is not told is that cholesterol therapy is actually called a J-curve. What's a J-curve? A J-curve means that when, the, uh, when you graph death rate versus uh, cholesterol target, or what cholesterol a person has achieved based on their, uh, their therapy, you get a certain amount of improvement. In other words, people doing better, whether you want to call it survival or whatever, and then deteriorate the lower the cholesterol gets. Now, where this cholesterol level is, is a matter of uh, discussion and debate. And back when I was practicing, that J-curve was somewhere uh, somewhere under 200. So in other words, if the doctor lowered the cholesterol down to, say, 200, it was believed that um, that was good. But if you got lower, say, 180, 150, then death rates increased. Okay. Latest research is that lowering the cholesterol is uh, absolutely useless in someone who has never had a heart attack. Let's go with that. Let's just accept that there's no benefit to these people taking cholesterol-lowering drugs. But we know that cholesterol-lowering drugs cause kidney failure, kidney dialysis. Actually, I saw this myself in my medical practice. It was, it was shocking. Uh, a patient had been to another doctor who was uh, up on the latest cholesterol stuff. And this is 1990-something, where cholesterol treatment was considered at that point um, cutting edge. And since I couldn't, based on reading the studies, determine any benefit, um, I, I didn't prescribe cholesterol drugs. So this lady uh, happened to be uh, well-to-do. She had her own business, and she was, you know, very profitable. And unfortunately, she had health insurance. And unfortunately, she was seeing one of the better doctors. And unfortunately, he kept up with these changes and unfortunately started on a cholesterol medication. She had the usual side effects, body aches and pains. Went back to the doctor and said, hey, you know, I got body aches and pains. He said, you know, this cholesterol stuff is pretty darn good. You should continue it. So she continued it for um, all of three months. And it was just absolutely debilitating. So she finally decided to stop it, but it was too late. Her um, kidneys had already started failing and uh, things went from uh, bad to worse. So she heard about me, so she switched. Initially, she was willing to make some dietary changes, and uh, she actually wanted to do cleansing. So then she decided, well, look, I'm only going to do cleansing. I'll only do enemas. I'm not going to make any dietary changes. So what happened then was she was actually able to control her kidney failure for as long as she was willing to do enemas. And she ultimately died uh, when she just decided to stop doing enemas. 
So that was uh, just absolutely awful, uh, atrocious. <laughs> and this was very early on in the whole cholesterol thing. And she took the, uh, the latest cholesterol medication of the day. Not the latest, the newest, which was either Lipitor or Mevacor. I forget which one. But the, and actually, it really doesn't matter which one. But the point is, lowering cholesterol does have a death rate associated with it. Now, cholesterol has also been um, attributed with causing people to gain weight, increasing obesity, increasing diabetes type 2. And we know that diabetes type 2 does have a death rate associated with it. So by having a cholesterol target of less than 200, which simply leads to more people being on these medications with absolutely no benefit, uh, we have a, uh, a kill rate that is um, that happens, and this is uh, this is one of those things. It's a tally. And the great thing about these kills is each drug you put the person on is only going to kill uh, a percent or fraction of a percent. Now, with cholesterol drugs, we have the MAIM rate, M-A-I-M, MAIM. That means people are harmed and not necessarily killed. Um, now, the MAIM rate with uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs is, is pretty darn high. So we have a stroke rate, and to make it seem not so bad, they add the, the hemorrhagic stroke rate, which is one type of stroke. And they don't add it. They keep it separate from the ischemic stroke rate, which is another kind of stroke. And so considered separately, each one is under 10%, which is pretty darn high anyway. So one is 11.9%, and one is... Um, is around 8%. But that's like 20% of people you add the two together on cholesterol-lowering medications that have strokes. That's, that's huge. And not that have strokes, but that have strokes who would not otherwise have strokes had they not taken the cholesterol medication. So this is, this is pretty huge. <laughs> so uh, the cholesterol target of less than 200 is, is a major uh, contributor to this kill rate of 880,000 a year. Uh, can't do it without it. Next is diabetes. Diabetes um, officially uh, kills more or less uh, 125,000 people a year, but that's the tip of the iceberg uh, because what's not mentioned in diabetes is something called accidents. An accident is when a diabetic takes their diabetic medications as instructed and wakes up dead. And you can Google that. It's called dead in bed syndrome. And this is, of course, escalating out of control. And so what's believed that, so what happens then is these diabetics who die as a result of their medical intervention, blood sugar going way too low in the middle of the night, are counted as deaths, but not counted as diabetic deaths. This is, this is amazing, uh, amazing metrics. But the metric the doctor shoots for is hemoglobin A1C. It's something called tight control. Tight control means the hemoglobin A1C of 7.6 or even less. Some doctors are even shooting for 6, God bless them. But we know that uh, shooting for lower hemoglobin A1Cs, now the the cat's out of the bag. It is of absolutely no medical benefit. (laughs) Get this. What is a profession, a medical profession doing engaging in activity that's a zero medical benefit. This is amazing. It's an amazing thing. And so in addition to being of no medical benefit, um, hemoglobin A1C less than eight is proven 
to increase mortality due to uh, complications of the med. Well, they don't call it complications of medication. They just say that the more medication a person gets, then um, the greater the chances are of dying. We're going to change these uh, sounds. There's a popping sound. We have just eliminated the popping sound. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> okay. So uh, hemoglobin A1C uh, less than 8 creates a lot of deaths. And where, where are these deaths measured? Measured uh, as accidents. So the accident rate among diabetics is, is skyrocketing absolutely through the roof. And so when diabetics die from accidents, these are not counted as disease-specific deaths. And so when they keep tally of deaths from diabetes, they mention diabetics who die from diabetic complications. Accidents are not, when you say accidents, many of us think of things like falls. No, that's not what an accident is if you're diabetic. If you're diabetic, an accident means you took your drug as directed and you died. So the accident is you died because you took your drug deliberately. You meant to take your drugs. You were doing what your doctor told you. The accident is that you died. And so these are counted as accidents. And because these are counted as accidents, when you look at the death toll, uh, what you find is that diabetics are dying in great numbers because they deliberately take their drugs as directed and accidentally die. This is a little nuanced, hair splitting, but it uh, helps the numbers and the metrics. And so just by having a metric of a hemoglobin A1C less than 8, um, this contributes to the kill rate of 880,000 people a year. Now, this is actually a pretty big contribution because this contribution is almost 100,000 people. And um, 100,000 out of 880,000, that's a pretty big chunk of change. So this hemoglobin A1C is less than 8 in creating the diagnosis of pre-diabetes, which people are clamoring to treat, by the way, so pre-diabetes is kind of like pre-crime. It's like arresting somebody and locking them up when they haven't got a crime. So pre-diabetes is putting somebody on uh, monitoring and under medical therapy when there is no medical problem. Yes. So that is a huge uh, contributor, hemoglobin A1C less than 8. Now we have uh, one of my favorites is wound debridement. Now, uh, wound debridement, uh, for those of you who don't uh, know what this is, a lot of people in the United States have wounds. These are wounds that just don't heal. They, they won't heal. And they're often they're referred to as ulcers. And if you live in a medium to large-sized town, there is a wound care center. I know we had a wound care center in Syracuse, New York, and medium-sized town of, uh, of about a million if you count all the suburbs. So the big deal here is what's going on, what's the standard of care, what's the metric, and how does this metric lead to death? Okay, the first thing to understand is when you have a wound that's not healing, you also have an open sore. And this open sore, things can get into this open sore, things like antibiotic-resistant bacteria. 
And once you get an infection, then what do you do? Well, of course, treat it with more antibiotics, naturally. And um, one major armamentarium of the treatment is, of course, uh, debridement. And debridement means when you have a wound and the wound fills with um, cloudy, creamy white stuff and blood and um, sticky sheet of material that sticks in the bottom of the wound, that you scrape all this stuff out and you scrape it out until it bleeds, right? Uh, the only problem with scraping this stuff out is the stuff that gets scraped out in the wound debridement process is the next layer of skin that was forming to heal the wound, right? So with the standard of care treatment for wounds of debridement, then the wound actually will never heal. So the doctor checks the wound every uh, one to 10 days, whatever he has de- uh, designed as the proper interval, and scrapes all this junk out that's forming in the bottom of the wound. And of course, this guarantees the wound will never heal. Now, I was in medical practice for 10 years in Syracuse, New York, and I diligently sent my difficult wounds that weren't healing to the wound center. Not one, not one, not one wound in 10 years ever healed. (laughs) This to me was amazing. And so I said to myself, they must be doing something wrong at that wound care center. But while I was in medical practice, I was very busy, didn't have time to look into it. And so after I left medical practice, I had time. Uh, of course, this is what we see, the uh, effects of a mild mind. And I looked into it, and it turns out that this debridement is a major, major factor because, again, the wound is never able to heal because all the stuff in the wound that creates your new piece of skin is scraped away and removed regularly and diligently. And so there's all kinds of uh, you know, obsolete methods for trying to heal a wound, but, of course, it doesn't. Uh, doesn't work. So what's the significance of this? Well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is 15,000 people every year die from uh, from bed sores and ulcers. And these bed sores and ulcers are treated by uh, this standard of care, by this deadly metric of keeping the wound clean. And of course, the patient is very excited about this. Oh my God, of course, keep my wound clean. Oh, pull all that icky looking stuff out of the wound wound. Only problem with icky looking stuff is that icky looking stuff is the precursor to new skin. And uh, so this deadly metric, this deadly medical intervention uh, contributes to at least 15,000 deaths a year. Now, if we take and add in the practice of using antibiotics to help these wounds heal, well now we have the contribution to the antibiotic-resistant infections, and whether it's uh, MRSA or Clostridium difficile um, or any of the many other ones, they all add to more or less 100,000 deaths per year. And so just this practice of wound debridement uh, with antibiotics, actually with or without antibiotics, contributes substantially to, uh, to this death toll. Now, I'll give you experience from my own medical practice. So I had this patient, and she was a, uh, a stripper. The relevance of that is she had this ulcer, this non-healing ulcer, on her uh, on her bottom, on her gluteus. And so I said, oh, my God, 
She's got to, we got to heal this thing because if we don't heal this thing, oh my God, you know, our whole occupation down to the tubes, right? So, uh, she would come to the office every two days. And every two days, I would diligently, you know, according to the standard of care, I would scrape off this um, thing, this liquid that is accumulating in the bottom of her wound. I would scrape it off, and I'd put antibiotic ointment on it and all this stuff. And so she was coming about every two days, and we were doing this. Finally, um, she stopped coming, thank God. This was early on in my medical practice when I was still a true believer. So she, she stopped showing up for about, uh, 10 days. Didn't that wound heal up? I mean, it healed beautifully. No scar, nothing. I said, hmm, there must be something I was doing that was contributing to this lack of healing. But thank God, she was happy as a clam. She says, you know, it's healed up really well, and I'm just thrilled, and I'm able to, you know, work without a hitch. And the scar is so minimal, no one even notices it. Well, of course, I was... <laughs> Very happy for her. But this is an example of uh, wound debridement, which is basically cleaning on a wound until you get down to fresh, bleeding, healthy tissue. And uh, this one little metric, uh, it causes a tremendous amount of, uh, of death and disability. Now, the next metric, which is... Uh, which is really devastating, is antibiotic use. This is, this is really uh, atrocious. But many hospitals have protocols in place for the use of prophylactic antibiotics. So uh, prophylactic antibiotics means, again, pre-crime. You treat an infection before it happens, you see. And this is a, this is a huge, huge issue. Because people are going into the hospital for routine surgery, uh, non-emergency surgery, for a condition that is not deadly. So if it was left untreated, there wouldn't be no death here. So we're looking at something like tonsillitis, um, knee arthroscopy, all the person's got, for Christ's sake, is uh, a painful knee, but at least they're alive. And so... By getting preventative prophylactic antibiotics, these people get what? Antibiotic-resistant infection, which have, a, depending on which uh, literature you're reading, a 10% death rate. So you've converted a person from a 0% death rate, uh, getting routine surgery for a condition that is not life-threatening, into a 10% death rate. And that's pretty in, in, uh, impressive conversion, you know, <laughs> if you ask me. Again, just toss another 100,000 dead bodies on top of the... Um, on top of the pile there, on our way to 880,000. So uh, prophylactic antibiotics, this is a real problem. Now, here in, in Panama, I'm just terribly impressed, very impressed with their approach to this, which is that uh, they realize where the MRSA infection comes from. They don't make any pretense about this. Uh, the MRSA infection basically comes from the, per- the patient's own body. Uh, they put the hospital there as a uh, scapegoat in the United States because the real industry they're, they're protecting is the industry, the food industry that feeds antibiotics to uh, animals and livestock. But here in Panama, you know, it's only 3 million people, so you can't keep these layers and layers and layers of deception going. 
And so what they do here is they give the patient instructions to scrub every single square inch or centimeter of their body, cut their nails, scrub under their nails, uh, you know, brush and floss their teeth, uh, clean behind their ears. They have a whole uh, regimen of everything a person has to scrape and clean uh, the day before they come to the hospital for surgery. So it's one thing they do. What's the next thing they do? They use diapers instead of urinary catheters. They don't put tubes into people routinely when they go for surgery because the tubes you put into a person from the outside of the body to the inside, even though it might be just a tube for collecting urine, so a person doesn't pee on themselves during surgery, let's say, um, that is an opportunity for infection to go from the person's skin into their body, violating or crossing the body's mucus barrier protection because a tube <laughs> provides the um, in the friction which creates the hole in the mucus, mucus membrane and then it provides a conduit to bring uh, bacteria into the person's body and then you give the person uh, antibiotics prophylactic antibiotics antibiotics for an infection they don't have and then uh, you have resistant bacteria from the person's skin going into their body, crossing the broken mucous membrane. And this is, this is a serious uh, tragedy. And so uh, prophylactic antibiotics, this is a metric. It's a standard of care. It's an it's a, um, automatic protocol in many hospitals. All the doctor gets to pick is which antibiotic to get. It's literally stamped there on what we call standing orders or standard orders. Uh, and the doctor can circle one of uh, three different antibiotics or classes of antibiotics. Another uh, deadly metric is use of preoperative antibiotics. I mean, the hospitals even have checklists. If checklists, the doctor has to check, yes, I prescribe these prophylactic antibiotics and this is the one and da 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 Again, just another metric. Now, another uh, <laughs> another metric is um, PSA. That's prostate-specific antigen screening. Now, the deception starts with the name of this test. First of all, it's not specific at all. It's very non-specific. When you have an elevated PSA, it could be from the muscles, it could be from the bone, it could be from the prostate, it could be a lot of places. So prostate-specific antigen, which is not at all specific, is a screening uh, for prostate cancer. And this is something that um, became fashionable in the... Um, early 80s, actually when I was in medical school a long time ago. And so we were told that these PSAs uh, were, just what the name says, prostate-specific antigens. And we were told the truth, actually, that they weren't that specific yet, but that they were getting better and that this test was going to be, this was the test. Now, that was, this was a transition from the alkaline phosphatase test. So, you know, alkaline phosphatase doesn't sound like it's the answer for prostate anything, right? So I had to create a test called prostate-specific antigen because the prior test, alkaline phosphatase, measured, as I said, stuff from everywhere. 
well, PSA is sufficiently uh, inaccurate or equally inaccurate, but with a name like that, how could you not use it? And so PSA screening was actually uh, recommended. The problem I have with PSA screening way back when was, one, we're screening for a disease that was harmless, and two, the test was not specific. It was just impossible to interpret. In other words, uh, an elevated PSA did not necessarily mean the person had cancer, and a normal PSA did not mean that they did not have cancer. And so what I found then was this was not a very satisfying test for me to order. So, of course, I didn't order it. And there were uh, urologists. The urologist is the name of the specialist that takes care of men's prostates and their urinary uh, machinery. So that would be their, their bladder, the tube that leaves the bladder, goes through the penis, and helps the urine get out of the body, as well as the prostate. So that's what the urologist uh, takes care of. And so we had a urologist in Syracuse who refused to do PSA screenings and refused to uh, manipulate the prostate of these guys, refused to prescribe any drugs relating to um, prostate cancer because he felt it was a big scam. And he was upset that men were being mutilated the same way women with breast cancer were being mutilated. He felt it was wrong. And when I was in medical school, uh, you know, one day I was thinking, gosh, we have all these surgeries, interventions, and mutilations for women. I mean, we've got child, child birth with the episiotomy and the C-section. We've got breast cancer where we cut off their boobs. We've got a hysterectomy where we take out the uterus. We don't really have anything for men. And men seem to be doing pretty well. I mean, the men were dying, yes. This was back in the 70s, 80s, anywhere from 10 to 20 years before women. But the reasons for their death were uh, not related to their reproductive organs. So I was thinking to myself, gosh, you know, these men are actually pretty lucky. They lead, get to lead their lives without having to go to the doctor all the time. They don't have to get cut on and chopped on and chipped away at. Oh, that's really cool. And these guys can just do what they want all year long. They don't even have to stop for checkups for anything. That is so cool. Whereas we women have all this complicated stuff that requires all this maintenance. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, little did I know, the medical industrial complex was working very hard on this missed economic opportunity and on remedying the situation. So by the time I got into practice and opened my medical office in 1990, they had all this stuff in place for men, for prostate cancer. And I scratched my head because there was no evidence that any of it was beneficial at all. And this is like, as they say, from the get, from the jump street, from the beginning. But we have PSA screening. And, of course, the PSA targets move all the time. Uh, PSA of 10, PSA of 7, PSA of 4. So the intervention targets are moving all the time, and, of course, they're getting lower all the time, which means that more and more men qualify yeah, qualify for prostate biopsy. And when people get prostate biopsies, that means they uh, stick a needle up the rectum yep, and pass it across the membrane into the prostate, yes. The intestines or rectum, uh, has high flow, like you have bowel movements every day at least, 
high flow. They pass it into the prostate, which is right next to the rectum, which has low flow. Not much moves in the prostate. And so then, of course, you get infections uh, from the uh, prostate biopsies. In my medical practice, I never did PSAs, so I never sent anyone to the urologist. And so they would, these guys would go on their own to the urologist because they were, well, you know, over 50, and they wanted to get things checked out. So the propaganda machine had already conditioned the guys to show up and to submit to mutilation. And so 100%, I'll repeat that, 100% of the males in my practice who got prostate biopsies also got chronic infections of the prostate. So they didn't have um, prostate cancer. They would receive prostatitis from the test designed to evaluate this unreliable PSA and see if they had prostate cancer. And so literally, again, this is before I was enlightened, I would actually put people on antibiotics for anywhere from two to even six weeks to clear up this prostatitis. And these guys were just uh, really, really hurting. I mean, if you're male and you've had prostatitis, you know how bad it is. So now what did they figured out? 2008. Now, I practiced from 1990 to 1999 and personally did not adopt either cholesterol therapy or prostate PSA screening because I looked at the existing research. It didn't support it. Okay. So in 2008, there's a task force uh, on preventive medicine. They recommended against screening with the PSA test for prostate cancer for men younger than 50 or older than 74. This is 2008. So fast forward to 2012, and the same teacher, the same committee rather, recommends against any PSA-based screening at all. They're recommended against all of it. Now, just to look at the economic side of this, this would literally put most urologists absolutely out of business. They had little enough work to do back in uh, 1990. So back in 1990, when I first entered medical practice, urologists had a tough time uh, staying busy and keeping the bills paid without prostate cancer to keep them going. But I digress. What about the human toll here? <laughs> what about the men who got antibiotic-resistant infections as a downstream complication of their prostate biopsies and then faced basically a 10% death rate from those infections? Well, the, cancer in, the prostate cancer industry does concede that people do die from prostate biopsies based on PSAs. And so if we understand that the PSA is, a, is an unreliable test that should no longer be done as a screening test, then we realize that all of these deaths are manufactured and that giving the PSA test and setting a level at which a biopsy is needed is simply creating a deadly metric, a deadly measuring point to uh, contribute to this 880,000 deaths per year. And just to let you know how bad that was, in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, about 96, doctors were actually being told 
of primary care doctors, that we should be doing PSA screening tests for all of our male patients. And that not to do a screening test was a deficiency in the quality of care. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, and so now this is, uh, it took 2012 to recommend against any further PSA screening. But of course, to this day, it's 2016, PSA screening uh, continues. Now, let's go the next route. So you've been screened for PSA, your level's elevated, got the biopsy, holy cow, it's cancer. Oh my God. Well, it's not only cancer, it's of course, we now know, harmless. And so then you embark on chemotherapy, its complications with of course, immeasurable kill rate. Then you embark on um, implanting radioactive seeds, they call them. And I never understood in medical school what a radioactive seed was. What did it grow into? Did it sprout? Did it become a plant? And so, of course, uh, seed simply refers to the shape and size of these radioactive uh, pellets that they insert in these guys. And so we have all kinds of other interventions. And these things have their complications and also have a death rate. And we know from statistics that the death rate from prostate cancer, those people do die, they do die, but they don't die from prostate cancer. And so the way they get around this with prostate cancer is they measure the um, disease-specific survival. And what this means is they, mention, they, they measure how many people die of that disease. The actual number who die, the total number is not measured. So the number of people who die as a complication of medical intervention are never measured, right? Because you're measuring only those who die of the prostate cancer itself. Okay. So disease-specific death rate for prostate cancer is actually less than the, the general death rate for males of the same age. Correct. So having prostate cancer actually, uh, if, if dying of it is what you're worried about, your chances of dying of prostate cancer are actually less and your chances of dying of other diseases. So prostate cancer will not be your major uh, likely cause of death. And again, what this does is this conceals all the deaths due to disease-specific therapy. So if a person dies um, due to uh, heart failure or kidney failure or any um, condition not directly related to prostate cancer, then they are not counted as a cancer-related death. So it gives the illusion that um, people with prostate cancer are uh, surviving and doing well with their therapy, let's say. So this type of screening, so screening exams that uh, detect conditions that are harmless and apply deadly therapies is a major contributor to the uh, 880,000 deaths per year due to medical intervention. What would the answer be? Uh, of course, just, just what the committee recommended. Do not get any PSA-based screening. So if you do not have prostate cancer, don't look for it. Don't get a prostate-specific antigen screening test. And this is a case where the saying, don't trouble trouble till trouble troubles you, is 
really uh, carries a lot of meaning and can actually be life-saving. Now we have one more area, and this is blood pressure less than 140 systolic. So if any of you have been keeping up with uh, blood pressure criteria, you know that blood blood pressure screening Blood pressure screening and um, treatment is big, big business. And also the blood pressure treatment targets um, are changing, of course, all the time. So now, um, so before I went to medical school, so I went to medical school in 1979. So before that, blood pressure was not considered high unless the top number was 150. And as I entered medical school, the treatment figure became 140. And now the treatment figure, um, at least for medical intervention, is 130. So if someone has blood pressure of 130, then that's the point at which doctors um, should at least counsel the person uh, about diet and and get them into some type of monitoring program. And so since we have doctors recommending now vegetarian diets filled with tofu and other fake imitation foods, then the, of course, dietary recommendations are uh, contributing to high blood pressure. I actually had vegans in my practice who ate fake meats and they had hypertension, even though they were vegetarian. Very, very interesting. So by bringing people into the medical treatment paradigm, um, with blood pressures at lower and lower levels, more and more people are being placed into this harm category. Now, the other thing to, to realize is most people who have heart attacks have normal blood pressure. Who have strokes have normal blood pressure. Correct. Yes. So these things are then called like uh, risk factors, right? <laughs> Which means, uh, give, let me give you the English translation, there's no evidence that these things cause the thing that they are, they are a risk factor for. For example, among women, um, being married might be a risk factor for pregnancy. But women who are not married also get pregnant. So it's not clear that the state of marriage uh, contributes tremendously to pregnancy. You actually have to do something to get pregnant, right? And the thing that you have to do is not related to uh, marital status. So medical risk factors are uh, similar. And in the case of blood pressure, um, this exposes people to some pretty dangerous drugs. And the neat thing about this is heart attack is a major cover story for people who die from their blood pressure medication. And how do we know this? We know this because 250,000 people every year die while taking blood pressure medication of a heart attack. In other words, this is some seriously ineffective uh, therapy here. And so whether the person dies from a so-called heart attack or as a complication of the medication uh, is not something that's really investigated. But it's pretty clear that uh, the therapy does have a role to play because 
much of blood pressure uh, therapy causes kidney failure, dialysis, and of course, premature death. So this uh, practice of getting people screened for blood pressure and treating them at lower and lower levels with more and more dangerous medication is a real issue. And again, because um, high blood pressure is treated as a risk factor for heart disease and heart attack, then when these people drop dead of heart attacks, no, drop dead suddenly, let's put it that way, drop dead suddenly, it's, oh, they had a heart attack in their sleep, or, oh, they, you attribute it to a heart attack. Well, you know, they had hypertension. Yes, they did. So this is a, a really uh, impressive uh, cover story where the medication leads to death, and the death, of course, is expected from the diagnosis, and then the diagnosis serves as a cover story uh, for the death. Now, the other thing is heart disease itself. So we have heart disease, and it's a big number. It's like 600 or 700,000 deaths a year, depending on whose figures you uh, decide to use. So 250,000 of these are people with hypertension who drop dead even though they were being treated. Now, that's an eyebrow raiser right there. Like, oh, excuse me, if hypertensive therapy is so helpful, how come people are dying from this problem when they have, when they're on medication? But it goes even, it's even better than that. So many of you are familiar with the uh, VIOC scandal of uh, early 2000s, basically 2000, uh, actually 2000, 2000 to 2003, the scandal. And so it's believed that mm, a couple hundred thousand people died of heart attacks just from taking this arthritis drug. Excuse me? <laughs> a question? Point of information? What was on those death certificates? I'll tell you what was on death certificates. Heart attack death. Yes, heart attack death. And people were, of course, told to get your cholesterol checked, get that treated, exercise, don't eat red meat. And they had a list of things people needed to do to avoid uh, heart attack deaths, right? So buried in this pile of heart attack deaths, especially the uh, sudden death, is about 100,000 dead bodies caused by medications such as sleeping pills and arthritis pills. This is every year. And so we have then this uh, Trojan horse of blood pressure and blood pressure screening, which is put forth as a way to reduce the death from heart disease. When you look at this death from heart disease, you find that of this death toll of 600 or 700,000, at least uh, 300,000 of these deaths are due to medical intervention, either complications of diabetic medications, complications of blood pressure medications, complications of sleeping medications, complications of arthritis medications. And when you add all these up, it's a pretty darn impressive number. Um, again, low number 100,000, high number um, two or even 300,000. <laughs> so um, this is a, this is a big one, and it's a major con- contributor to the uh, the death toll. And these are the deadly metrics. So let's briefly run through uh, how we can avoid these metrics. Of course, don't get measured, right? So don't get a cholesterol test or hemoglobin A1. C test or PSA screening or prophylactic antibiotics. So simply avoid these interventions. And as for wound care, 
don't let your doctor clean it until it bleeds. In fact, probably shouldn't be seeing your doctor for wound care. If you have a wound so serious that you think it requires medical intervention, the um, best thing is simply to get an aloe leaf, slice it to expose the slimy side, and put the slimy side down towards the wound, and uh, either wrap it in place with nonstick um, if you're allergic to, to glue, or just um, tape it in place. And then we want to change that LO every, you know, every, every day or so. Of course, this is not medical advice. <laughs> this is just my opinion based on some pretty compelling information here. Uh, but you decide for yourself, and whatever you decide, of course, is on you. We have got tons of questions here. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, is kissing a girl during full moon cause pregnancy? You know, anything's possible, but probably not likely. How is side effect determined? Um, I'm not quite sure what that question means. But uh, so, so side effect is a non-beneficial effect of medication. More to, the, more to the point, it's a harmful effect of medication um, that's not planned at the time of uh, prescription. That would be one thing. But the way that this list is developed is when drug companies do research, uh, they submit, based on their research, a list of observed side effects. Then the FDA approves the drug, and then once the drug is released, a much longer list uh, of events, we'll call them events, that happen to people who are taking this drug. And then that adds to the list of side effects. And then this final list is uh, the FDA then adds it to the existing list. And if these side effects are sufficiently damaging, harmful, or dangerous, they're put in a black box, and it's called a black box warning. I hope that helps. <laughs> okay. My sister and brother are being treated for heart ailments. Is it the ailment or the treatment that, that ruins the family? Actually, both. And this is the point, of course, is to ruin the family, or at least control it. And with these uh different interventions, you literally control uh, the family. You've got a series of tests, a series of visits, a series of drugs that have to be taken throughout the day. Totally intrusive. Okay. What is the HSV, that means herpes simplex virus 2, pass on rate with unprotected sex or with only condoms? This is absolutely not clear because most everyone has herpes simplex virus if you've ever had chickenpox. So how can you say you pass it on to someone else when really they already have it? So that's a difficult one. Okay. Uh, my, Dr. Daniels, my blood pressure averages 145 over 85 and I no longer eat processed foods. I take a lot of herbs. Uh, and sometimes it spikes a little higher. What can I take that will acutely lower my blood pressure when it spikes? Uh, you could just take a tablespoon of garlic uh, powder. Uh, you know that'll that'll lower it right down. But the real issue here is what you're doing that keeps it up. So you have to stop doing what you're doing to keep it up, and that would require a meticulous uh, review of your diet. And you can go to vitalitycapsules.com, click on discovery session, and we can uh, let you know what that would entail and how to get that blood pressure down and keep it that way. <laughs> Uh, okay. 
Zachary, people are going to die anyway. Shouldn't they might as well get tortured early and often by the medical industrial complex? Well, I think that's a choice that people have, and I think that people should actively choose if they want to uh, get tortured early and often, or if they'd rather take the much nicer path uh, that nature has laid out for them of just, uh, you know, watching what they eat and taking responsibility. It's a lot less expensive, a lot um, more effective and uh, pleasant, too. All right, so the end of our show, we are all done. They're about to cut me off. And as always, think happens, tune in sweet, and visit vitalitycapsules.com. Check it out. Okay, we've got to click a button here somewhere. Uh, let's see. Ah, oh, here we are. 